to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I am here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We've made it to Friday, but we haven't made it out of the news. <laughs> there is a lot. There keep being things, John, that I that I want to talk about that I feel like, well, I don't know if we're going to have time to get into that. Yeah, it's um, crazy busy for a Friday. I'm I'm shocked at how much is going on around the world. Yeah. And also, you know, it's very important to make time to laugh at what is happening on Twitter. Of course, there are serious consequences, but boy, it has been funny what people have been doing with Twitter Blue, which was this sort of uh, parallel verification scheme that was launched where you could pay to have your account uh, appear to be verified. And so people for right. the past couple of days have been doing that and you get just absolute gems uh, like the brand Kachita, uh, Chiquita Banana appearing to uh, announce that it had overthrown South American governments mm-hmm. and then apologize and say, no, 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 we haven't done that. We haven't done that for decades. Um, <laughs> lots of, you know, Tesla, brands impersonating Tesla talking about being on fire. <laughs> like it's been it's been delightful. Uh, and unfortunately, we can't talk all day about our favorites of those tweets because there is other actual news to get to. There is indeed. There's a lot of news. I mean, crazy stuff from not just the big stories, of course, but little things like the CIA issued a press release yesterday saying that um, that they had established the first ever CIA laboratory. Yay. Yeah. And and they say very matter of factly that. This is going to be a lab under federal auspices. It joins a community of more than 300 federal labs and establishes the CIA as a research partner for other labs, academia and industry in disciplines spanning from artificial intelligence and biotech to quantum computing and advanced materials and manufacturing. This scares the daylights out of me because there's already practically no oversight of the CIA. How much oversight could there possibly be of a CIA laboratory when the entire staff of the Senate Intelligence Committee is 20 people? I don't understand what you what you think the big deal is, John. I can't see why you would want oversight <laughs> of labs that are tinkering around with artificial intelligence, especially an organization with a track record of the CIA. Oh, I think. boy. And, you know, at, uh, Michelle, at the very end of this um, of this press release, it says organizations interested in partnering uh, with the CIA can contact CIA, CIA labs here. And there's a link. It's just nuts. <laughs> right. It's nuts. Yeah, it's not good. No. We are going to talk uh, a little more about that. We are going to talk about the Russian withdrawal from Kherson and what it signals. Uh, we will talk about a new report on the effect of our sanctions on Syria and in particular on the Syrian people. Uh, we are going to get into some more U.S. intimidation in the Middle East. Uh, we've got we've got Biden and Xi Jinping meeting in person for the first time this weekend. So we'll right. talk more about that on Monday. Um Chaos at Twitter, of course, the release of a political prisoner in the United States. We've got the FTC saying gloves are off now when it comes to unfair competition practices. Uh, We are going to talk about the possibility of a rail strike. It has been pushed back, but it is absolutely 
not right. out of the picture completely. Uh, we've got jockeying already for Speaker of the House and perhaps some embarrassing moments ahead for Kevin McCarthy. Uh, we've got declassified information about 9-11. We have more midterm results. And we do have the bankruptcy of FTX, which yep. maybe we could have predicted a, a day or two ago. Um, I want to talk about that for a minute because, you know, we, we talked about this yesterday and we talked about um, how insulated the rest of the economy could be from a crash this size. Um, so it looks like Sam Bankman-Fried, who had been the CEO of cryptocurrency platform FTX until yesterday, we joked about him going from $16 billion to $1 billion over the past couple right. of days. Looks like that last billion is also vanishing. He's filed for bankruptcy. He stepped down as CEO. He continues to say that the company is fighting to bring liquidity to customers. I don't know how that's going to work. But, you know, as uh, Robert Hockett mentioned yesterday on the show, he I'm sure he said he recalled, you know, some pension funds that might have gotten involved um, yesterday. The Ontario Teachers Pension Plan released a statement saying, indeed, in October of last year, it invested $75 million in FTX International and the U.S. entity FTX U.S. It invested $20 million more in January of this year. That adds up to $95 million. And the pension fund, again, which is for teachers in Ontario, doesn't know how much they'll get back. And that is a, is a real tragedy. Here. And this also highlights the fact that, you know, if, if you want to make any money at all, right, if you want to have any kind of money to retire on, we're all forced to engage in the in the giant casino that is so much of our stock market. And so in this case, you know, crypto is new. Crypto is particularly ephemeral. You know, any anything that's sort of outside the actual blockchain processes, right, that were sort of novel. But right. the regular accepted financial markets are not much different. And I don't think we would see a very different outcome if a bunch of investors suddenly wanted to pull their cash out of a bunch of derivative funds. You know, mm. we would see the same thing. And so unless you want to build your nest egg, your retirement nest egg on earning two and a half percent on a few thousand dollars, you have to give your money to a bunch of psychopathic hedge fund managers to play with. It is really disgusting. And so I'm really sad that this teacher's pension fund got burned. You know, they decided to be among the first to dip a toe mm -hmm. into this this new casino. But it's not very different from the old casino. And I feel like the lesson should be about how shaky all of these markets are, right? And right. how we maybe should not be frog-marched into taking part just to have some hope of any kind of financial stability in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, we saw this in the 1990s with with derivatives, too. So many people pretended to understand what derivatives were. And then by the time the tech crash came in the summer of 99 um, and, and into 2000, they lost their shirts. We're seeing yeah. the same thing happening now with crypto. And crypto just hadn't yet become too much a part of our uh, accepted uh, right. accepted sort of a financial ecosystem to be too big to fail, right? That's right. But it wasn't just the Ontario teachers, by the way, also. It was BlackRock, SoftBank, Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund uh, all decided to to gamble with the, the money that they had been given by people in the likes of FTX. So, you know. I don't yeah. know. It's it's a bigger it, it should shine a light on a bigger issue. It won't. But it really it really should that we are forced to take part in this uh, huge gambling scheme. 
Indeed. Indeed. I have some more economic news also that I wanted to get to uh, before we move on to the rest of the show. Axios has a scoop today uh, that the Biden administration is trying to recruit a seasoned business executive, potentially a Wall Street banker, to join the White House in a senior role. And it tells us it tells us that the uh, the current National Economic Council director, Brian Deese, is going to leave his position this winter. And that would create at least one high profile opening mm-hmm. at what Axios calls the nerve center of Biden's White House. You know, um, this, is, this is Bill Clinton and the, the Democratic. What did they call that moderate group that Bill Clinton was was the leader of the Democratic Leadership Council, whatever. It's that neoliberal Pro Wall Street bankers can save us from everything kind of economic attitude. Yeah, it, it failed in the 1990s. Why would we go back to it now? No one is able to see around it or chooses to see around it. Yeah, it's it's astonishing to me. And what they are saying is that Biden is preparing for a reelection campaign during a likely economic downturn. I guess now that the midterms are over, we don't have to pretend a recession isn't coming anymore, which is pretty funny. Like this is an about face from reporting a couple a couple of weeks ago. Biden's, I guess. As of what last week was still saying, a recession is unlikely. And if it happens, it'll be slight. And now they're preparing to run for reelection during a downturn. Uh, and so, yeah, they're saying they want to improve their relationship with the business community. I also I take issue with this line from this story. Axios says corporate profits are down. Interest rates are rising and markets are volatile. Uh, I try. I mean, we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about uh, record profits record corporate profits, uh, at least among big oil makers and big corporate profits among others. And what I could see, I mean, I went and tried to check this uh, as fast as I could. Corporate profits just didn't increase as much as expected in some in some areas, which is not the same as being down. And we maybe need to revise our expectations away from massive eternal growth. I, I don't know. I, I it, this corporate. I don't know that you can just sort of glibly say, "Oh, corporate profits are down," and so the White House needs to play nicely with uh, with Wall Street. But of course, that's what they're going to do. I also would like to say um, the the story notes that Deese helped negotiate the Inflation Reduction Act with Joe Manchin, and has built good relationships on the Hill, and so he might still stay on to help implement some of Biden's sig- signature legislative uh, accomplishments. Oh, good. Oh, that that's your legacy, that negotiation with Joe Manchin? Oh, no. You know, there was a piece in the Hill.com today, too, saying that um, not only are the races for the House of Representatives uh, still so close that we don't know who won the House, but in the event that the Republicans do win, Kevin McCarthy has such a, would have such a small majority that his caucus is going to be 218 Joe Manchins. And uh-huh. every one of them is going to make unreasonable demands. Yep. Fine by me. <laughs> and the other news that I, I, I think we should mention here, because we won't be able to get to it uh, later, but that is that Joe, Joe Biden's uh, student loan forgiveness plan has been blocked, uh, maybe temporarily, John, but it has been blocked in a court, which has decided that it is it is unconstitutional. I'm not sure why. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's going to go now. This was a federal judge in the state of Texas. um, And it's not a terrible surprise. Um, He's a he's a Trump appointee. And so 
the issue is going to have to go to the Circuit Court of Appeals, regardless of, of who wins there. My guess is that whoever the loser is, is going to appeal to the Supreme Court. And that's where this is finally going to be figured out. Yeah. So so we will see a, a temporary block. But again, another thing that I guess uh, Biden is lucky did not happen before the vote. Yeah, yeah. right. The right. other this is listen, I don't want to make light of a very serious situation. And in this case, honestly, two very serious situations, although one more immediately dire than the other. But there's a story in The Independent today about a British-Ukrainian couple who had left Ukraine uh, because of the conflict. Uh, They came to the UK. Uh, They've decided to move back to a country actively at war within its borders because of how terrible it is trying to find a place to live in the UK. Yeah, good luck. This is wild. They left, I guess, um, they, they left in February. They lived in Kiev. They left in February. Uh, at least one of them had dual citizenship. They went to the UK. Um, they they were there on some kind of uh, particular visa program, and they had employment in the UK. So they weren't able to apply for uh, what's called the Homes for Ukraine program, where the UK has uh, attempted to provide for Ukrainian refugees. Mm-hmm. And so uh, one half of the couple tells a uh, a news agency. They looked for a place to live in this city and that city, but uh, they were met with terrible housing conditions, high costs and rental requirements they couldn't meet. And when they returned to Ukraine in September to visit family, they decided, uh, you know, we'll just stay here. The, the half of the couple says we doubled our budget. We had a very strict list of requirements and we just kept going, OK, well, we'll compromise here. We'll compromise there. And anything we got even remotely close to getting was just terrible. So, yeah, rather than try to find accommodations in the United Kingdom, let's move back to Ukraine. They have gone to a city in the West where they say, uh, you know, the the worst thing that they expect to experience are, are power outages. There was a piece in the Times of London yesterday uh, that was very similar to this. It was an article about how um, when people get divorced or when they own real estate together in London and decide to either get divorced or split up or whatever, uh, the relationship's not working out. It's so expensive in London that these couples have to continue living together because neither one of them can afford to sell the the apartment or the house that they have and move into their own place. And so it's uh, there were there were like fifty thousand couples like this. I think was the number that I saw. Yeah. And it said ninety one percent of them or ninety percent of them describe their living situations as miserable. Yeah. It just should not be this hard to find a place to live, people. Not in the UK, not here. It shouldn't be. We shouldn't have to give our money to insane gamblers and cross our fingers that they're not going to lose it all and making some dumb bet. Just none of this, none of this should should be the case. None of this has to be the world that that we live in. Yeah, you can say that again. Anyway. All right. Well, let's take a break now. I know we've got our next guest on the line and a whole bunch of international stories to get into. So let's do just that. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back.
back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatments. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Ukrainian forces entered Kherson today, slowly, even gingerly perhaps, after Russian troops pulled back to the east bank of the Dnieper River. Early press reports here in the U.S. called this a Russian retreat. Now we know, of course, that it's not an actual retreat. It's a tactical regrouping. But in the meantime, there are whispers that pressure is increasingly on Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to begin talks with Russia. The U.S. position on talks is unclear in the whole. While many Republicans want to see the war come to a quick end, it's the Democrats who are pushing ever-increasing transfers of money, weapons, systems, and materiel to the Ukrainians. Winter is beginning to descend on the region. What does that mean for fighting in the coming months? We don't know. Most notably, what we are not seeing is pressure from the UN Secretary General to end the war. We are not seeing debate within the European Union or within NATO. We're seeing a continuation of the status quo with no regard for the prospects for peace. Meanwhile, the U.S. Air Force flew a pair of B-52 long-range bombers over the Middle East yesterday. The unusual move was meant as a threat to Iran and was also likely done at the request of Saudi Arabia. We're going to give you some really interesting news about that. And finally, the U.S. this week very quietly declassified an interview done with President George W. Bush and Vice President Dick Cheney some two and a half years after the 9-11 attacks. We'll tell you about that. We're joined by Nicholas Davies. Nick is an independent journalist, a researcher with Code Pink, and the author of the book Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion and Destruction of Iraq, And the book, Making War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless War, along with Medea Benjamin. Nick, always great to have you. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. Nick, we've seen this lack of progress toward not just peace, but even just basic negotiations. But General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, apparently said in a private closed-door meeting recently that the time for negotiations is now. If the Ukrainians want to cement their military gains at the bargaining table, they should be seeking talks right now with Russia. But this is not a position supported by the Biden White House. Something, at the end of the day, has to give. What do you see happening in the coming weeks? Are we going to begin inching our way toward peace talks? Um, Yes. Well, I I do think we are. I can add a couple of things to that narrative. Biden, whenever he has directly confronted on on the lack of an endgame or any sort of coherent purpose to to what the U.S. and Ukraine really is, he has uh, fallen back on saying, well, what we're trying to do is to get Ukrainians into a strong enough position to to negotiate with Russia. Um, And in fact, uh, events this week... interesting. Uh, there's, there's Milley's comments, uh, but then there was also a report in La Repubblica, an Italian newspaper, a few days ago that said the discussions in NATO hinged, as, as Milley kind of suggested there, on just so. If the goal is to get Ukraine into a strong negotiating position, what would actually constitute a strong negotiating position for Ukraine. I think, uh, especially from the Europeans, 
they, they would like to define this in a way where it can happen sooner rather than later before, as you say, the winter closes in and, uh, on every, you know, all the people across the world. Um, apparently, according to La Repubblica, the consensus in NATO is that a strong position for Ukraine, what that would look like would be the retaking of Herzon. And um, this is all from, you know, and lo and behold, within two or three days of that report, Russia uh, declared that it was pulling out of Herzon. Um, and in fact, it has now done so. So, um, you know, it, it seems to me that, uh, you know, what, what you described as, a, as frankly, a, an untenable and incoherent position uh, from the Biden administration is, in fact, um, giving way uh, to some extent under pressure from, from his allies uh, to a recognition that this may be the moment, this may be the best moment Ukraine is going to have to to actually to actually negotiate. Now, of course, even you know the, that would just be the beginning of peace deal and and a ceasefire, because obviously while they came very very close to one in March, uh, and it was only the actions of of the U.S. and U.K. really that, that torpedoed that. Conditions have hardened since then. Russia has has taken more territory. Uh, the, the Ukrainians have hardened their position. So, you know, I think if we look back at the at the, at the deal that, uh, as far as we know, was on the table in March, um, Ukraine was ready to become a neutral state, to to disavow having foreign military bases on its territory. Uh, Russia was ready to withdraw from the areas it had occupied uh, since February, and you know the and the, the real sticking points, of course, were first sticking point was the security guarantees that Ukraine wanted from the West, and that's of course what the UK and um, the US refused to give it, um, which essentially torpedoed the the peace talks. Um, you know, Boris Johnson went to Kiev on April the 9th and said, you can make an agreement with Ukraine, but the quote-unquote collective West wants no part of any agreement with Russia. And, you know, but we, you know we're in this for the long run, and, uh, and um, you know, we want you to stop talking and keep fighting. And um, so... Um, the, so, so now the, the other, well, the other sticking point, of course, was what happens to the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics and what happens to Crimea. Um, there were really sort of two models, uh, two pre-existing models for that. And one, of course, in terms of Donbass was the um, Minsk II agreement in which they remained part of Ukraine, but were granted you know, an autonomy that would amount to, to some kind of internal self-government, you know, perhaps something on the line of what Scotland and Wales have within the UK now. Right. Um, and, uh, you 
know, but maybe we've got maybe we've gone too far for that now. I don't know. The, well, apparently was also on the table as a Ukrainian proposal in March was that the final status of those territories would not be part of the initial agreement, but there would be an agreement on a period of political transition, presumably involving uh, an internationally recognized um, uh, process of, of referenda and elections in, the, in those territories that, uh, that everybody would agree to. And again, they're, they're there again. If, 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 uh, you know, if that's also what Johnson was talking about when he said uh, the West wanted no part of any of this, um, there again, there, that would be another roadblock. Uh, but the, you know, if, if, if NATO is on board with new negotiations, you know, we just have to pray and keep pushing NATO and the U.S. not to screw up those negotiations as they did the last time. Nick, the Air Force announced yesterday, and it was trumpeted in all the military news outlets and on the Voice of America, that it had flown two B-52 long-range bombers over the Middle East yesterday. These two planes took off from a Royal Air Force base in England. They flew south over the eastern Mediterranean, the Red Sea, and the Arabian Peninsula, Peninsula, and then they turned around and flew back to the UK. Much more interestingly, they were accompanied by fighter jets from the UK, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Israel. This was meant to be a warning to Iran, which has been complaining that Saudi Arabia is fomenting discord and is responsible for many of the demonstrations taking place in Iran right now. What should we take from this flight, do you think? These B-52 runs in and of themselves are not unusual. The last one took place in June. But having both the Saudis and the Israelis participate is highly unusual, perhaps unprecedented. What do you think? That's really pretty extraordinary. Um, and it, it, I, I think what we're seeing is as, as the U.S. essentially loses a lot of its sort of you know, universal or, or somewhat near universal um, influence that it's been able to maintain, um, uh, you know, really since the end of the Cold War uh, across the world and across the global south. Um, and of course, it's, you know, it's the long, long running, um, you know, hegemony over so much of the world. Um, you know, it, it has it has reverted to creating these, um, yeah, I guess, you know, what, what Bush called coalitions of the willing, of course, in the coalition of the willing that invaded Iraq. You know, it was basically the U.S. and the U.K. and a few special operations forces from Denmark, Poland, and Australia, sort of other, other countries chipping in financially and so on. But um, so, so now we have, you know, we have the Quad, Indo-Pacific, which is um, U.S., Australia, Japan, India. We have AUKUS, you know, which is sort of another version of that, uh, the more sort of Anglo-Saxon uh, quadrant of that. Um, and and in in different parts of the world, this I mean I mean it's so it's so tragic, really, that you know before Biden took office, he talked about. Placing the use of force in the world with you know, in U.S. policy with with 
a new era of diplomacy. But you know what? What we have come to see really is that what Biden means by diplomacy, and what you know the UN Charter means by diplomacy, and what. Uh, most of us would understand by diplomacy uh, are different things. We, you know, right. what it seems to amount to for by the Biden administration is simply cobbling together these, yeah, uh, coalitions of the uh, of the something coalitions of the U.S. M. You know, the remnants of the U.S. Empire in different parts of the world, um, and and this raises a, you know, this is of course. Really, a long-standing problem in U.S. the global South. Um, it reminds me of an ex, uh, expression by Gabriel Kolko in a, rookie, a book he wrote in, I think, 1979, called "Confronting the Third World." And he said, "The notion of an honest puppet is a contradiction that the United States has failed to resolve anywhere in the world." Since 1945, and of course that is exemplified today by U.S. relations with countries, you know, absolutely barbaric countries like Israel and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, um, and um, you know, it, it's really looking at that that squadron of planes flying over the Middle East. One really has to wonder, sort of, who. Who is in charge there? <laughs> is it Saudi Arabia? Is it the United States? Um, you know, well, what about the role of the UK in all this? I mean, the UK is the third largest military spender in the last 20 years. And, and just going back to Ukraine for a minute, another interesting development there is that practically the day Rishi Sunak placed Johnson and Crust the Prime Minister of the UK, Ben Wallace, the uh, Minister of Defence of the UK, picked up the phone and spoke to, for the first time, I think, the invasion of Ukraine, to uh, Mr. Shoigu, his counterpart, and so, you know, I think, you know, the UK, uh, you know, just plays such an insidious role in these situations, especially when you have people like Tony Blair and Boris Johnson and, and you know, God help us, Liz Trust, uh, taking part in the in, in, in these coalitions. And um, Rizzi Sunak may be a little bit of a of an adult uh, in the room in, in things going forward. We you know we we it remains to be seen. The government here in the U.S. on Tuesday declassified the summary of an interview that the 9-11 Commission had done with President Bush and Vice President Cheney on April 29, 2004. There were several interesting conclusions from the interview that I wanted to get your comments on, even if there were no real eye-opening revelations. First, the commission members noted that there was an apparent absence of even a glimmer of self-awareness by Bush about the significance of the death and destruction he was unleashing with this global war on terror. The interview took place just as a massive insurgency was erupting in Iraq against a U.S. occupation that would end up killing thousands of U.S. soldiers and tens of thousands of Iraqi civilians at least. While the document is a rough transcript and summary, it was not taped. Bush comes off as almost 
childishly simplistic in his insights and analysis. And second, the document describes a chaotic scene with communications equipment failing and Bush being overwhelmed with rumors and reports about other potential targets on 9-11, including Air Force One and his own private ranch in Crawford, Texas. Bush said he had heard of the fog of war, but that day he saw it firsthand. He wanted to go back to D.C., but instead he was flown to Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana while Cheney took over things from the bunker under the White House. The document goes on to say that during this period, the secure phone line between Bush and Cheney kept failing and they couldn't talk to each other. Bush also tried to call Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, but said that nobody could find Rumsfeld. Bush was very frustrated about not being able to make contact with different people. He also complained that there was no good television on Air Force One. I don't even know what to make of that statement. He was eventually moved to off at Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska, where he had better secure communications equipment. Um, he would spend some nine hours aboard Air Force One that day, and he did not return to the White House until 7 p.m. What are the lessons to be learned here, Nick? Where do we even begin? Actually, that, that conforms, I mean, apart from the stuff of exactly what happened on the day of 9-11, but talking about um, Bush's uh, grasp of, of, of uh, foreign affairs and, and war and reality, that conforms very much with what I was hearing at the time secondhand from someone who, who, who gave regular briefings at the White House to Bush and Cheney. And uh, his description was that, in fact, he, which was surprisingly curious. He was trying to give Bush, uh, in a way, a little subversively, um, uh, trying to give Bush the the perspectives of in on U.S. foreign policy that that he was not getting from the tight circle of neocons surrounding him. And and he found that Bush was surprisingly curious and receptive. He would come in with follow-up questions and say, you know, he clearly never heard any of this before. Uh, and, you know, it was completely, you know, it was like sort of having a college student or something. But, but, um, but and, you know, these briefings could only go on so long. And he said that very often when it, when it started to get really interesting, uh, Cheney would literally look at his watch and say, well, you know, we've got a busy day ahead, Mr. President. Um, you know, I think we're going to have to wrap this up now. And thank you so much, Mr. Ambassador. I'll be talking to you, uh, uh, you know, where, whenever it was next week or in a couple of weeks. And, and um, so, you know, this is really borne out by this. It's, it just sort of all confirms that impression. But, I would say what it what it what this all re reveals, along with a lot of other evidence, is uh, is is that frankly, um, at least since Clinton, that every every successive president has has been, you know, really really deeply entrenched in U.S. domestic politics and 
and has has made foreign policy decisions based on U.S. domestic politics, and that that is you know that that, that is just so destructive of any coherent, intelligent way forward in the world for a powerful country like the United States. I mean, another example is is what Obama called his, his team of rivals. You know, as if, as if every foreign policy question could be boiled down to sort of two, two viewpoints of, of two factions of, of, of U.S. politics. Uh, and um, so... Yeah, I, I, I really don't know what the answer is to that, but I mean, and clearly the same, the, the same critique applies, you know, from, you know, Clinton, who famously told Lee Hamilton at his first cabinet meeting, you know, that, that he was going on too long and, hey, Lee, no, you know, the American public in foreign policy. And, it, but, but every one of them has, has, has made Really, just dreadful decisions. Bush, yes, he he thought his legacy depended on being a war president. Um, you know, then Obama's team of rivals, Trump, make America great again, and now Biden. But Biden's efforts to, um, you know, to, to to sort of cobble together these these ad hoc coalitions in which it's not even clear if the U.S. is is a leader or a follower. And that applies again to Ukraine, too. Who was taking the lead there when when Johnson dashed off to to Ukraine in April to torpedo the peace talks? Yes. Uh, You know, it it reminds me of Thatcher and and George H.W. Bush. You know, who was in charge there? Most most Americans and most British people assume that you know it's uh, it's the U.S. The, the you know the wild imperial power now and 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 the U.K. following along like a little gun dog or a little poodle. Um, but at critical moments, the U.S. The, 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 sorry, the U.K. has in fact led the U.S. into a lot of trouble. I want to ask you about um, migration. A charity run ship carrying 230 migrants who were not permitted to enter Italy has arrived in France. Italy's new right wing government has said that it will no longer allow migrants to enter the country. Uh, of course, that's in violation of international law. In response, France said that it will now not accept another 3,000 migrants that were supposed to be transferred from Italy to France. Greece and Spain have also said that they are at saturation level and they can no longer accept immigrants except on an emergency basis. What are the prospects for an EU-wide agreement on migrants and what are the roles of Turkey and Libya where so many of these migrants are transiting? This is just a tragic erosion of uh, refugees' rights, the, the right to that that has been a part of international law agreed on by by all these countries for you know since soon after the second world war and or even before and um you know we have yes we have more refugees in the world than ever before and it's also just a reflection of of you know what what Pepe Escobar calls of chaos it has built or, or, or unbuilt since since uh, the end of the of the Cold War, undermining undermining international law on 
so many levels. Simple, the fundamental question of aggression, um, you know, to the, the Geneva Conventions on the treatment of prisoners and civilians, um, and now the, the rights of refugees, just led by the United States at the southern border, but, but now really, um, you know, with, with Europe uh, joining, joining that, that, that same process. And I think what we, what we are seeing as a, as a result of this is, uh, as we said earlier, the the um, the global South uh, realizing that you know they can no longer look to the West and to the United States for leadership in the world, and that they have to find ways to to raise their own voices and and control their own affairs, help you know work with others such as China to to shape the world. I mean, I, I saw uh, absolutely shattering. Some shattering numbers uh, recently that since the West outsourced manufacturing to the global south, the global south now produces 26% more in value of manufactured goods than the wealthy north. Income of those countries and the, those people from producing all the goods that we all need is 80% less than the income of people. Well, how, how can that state of affairs be maintained? I mean, for one thing, it can only be maintained by the use of force and also by, by the erosion of the right to migration, the right to refuge, uh, because most of these people are fleeing wars that the U.S. and the West caused in their own in their countries. And, um, and so, you know, unless, unless the prosperity that those countries and that those parts of the world produce for us here are, are shared with them, then people are going, and as long as these, these injustices and these imbalances are maintained by force, by us, and um, you, you know the, 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 these these ref, huge huge flows of refugees are, are going to be inevitable. And if and if the, the 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 wealthy North just tries to slam its doors on them all, um, you know that, then that only that will, can only accentuate the chaos that, that that our policies are already creating for most of the people. In the world, do I have time for one short story? Uh, we're kind of pressed, but but yeah, if if you can make it quick. Yes. Well, I did a book event for our new book on Ukraine yesterday at a university in Florida, and of course, this case, this this larger question came up of the the West versus Russia, and a young. I gave the microphone to a, a young black girl at the back of the room. And she started basically um, presenting the Russian point of view and, and, and said, the U.S. is a word for excrement. And it came out, then she went on to tell her story. She said, I escaped from Haiti with my mother as a four-year-old, climbing over dead bodies in 2004 during the, the U.S. coup against Aristide and the U.S 
invasion. And her mother smuggled her out of the country in a sack. And she is still receiving treatment for PTSD to this day. Um, you know, here she is now, I guess it would be a 22-year-old student. And, and this is, I mean, this, this was, you know, in, in a nice university in Florida, you know, this was, this was a reality check for the discussion we were having about Ukraine. That, you know, the global South has another point of view, and it is gradually filtering through to us in the North and in the West. And we need to listen. Indeed. That was the voice of Nick Davies. He's an independent journalist, a researcher with Code Pink, and the author of the book Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion and Destruction of Iraq, and the new book Making War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless War, along with Medea Benjamin. We don't have um, a whole lot of time, so we're not going to take a break, Michelle. I think we should talk to our our next guest. He's been waiting patiently. Yes, I wanted to talk about um, some simmering labor news in the United States. Uh, I want to get into what is happening between rail companies and unions, where that standoff is headed, and also what to think about the FTC's recent announcement that it is about to get way more serious about confronting unfair methods of competition. We are joined now by Dan Kavalik. He's a labor attorney, a human rights activist, and author. Dan, thank you for being here. Thank you. We might have a dodgy connection. We'll see if it shapes up a little bit. I I wanted to talk about strikes. We've um, spoken on the show about the Biden administration's hammering out a tentative agreement between rail workers unions and rail freight companies back in September. But that agreement was always subject to final ratification by union members, and it is not at all clear if it will hold. Uh, The union was touted as a victory for workers, but quite a few union members have not seen it that way. Uh, Bloomberg's labor reporter wrote just yesterday that he was told by an official with one of the unions that has yet to vote uh, that he genuinely does not know if there is going to be a rail strike in the next few weeks and says he hasn't experienced anything like this in the nearly 20 years he's been on the job. Um, So, so far, seven unions have ratified the deal, two have rejected it, and three are going to vote later this month. And and just yesterday, uh, the unions that had voted against it and had authorized strikes pushed back their strike dates until after Thanksgiving and into December, in part to allow other unions to vote without a strike actually being underway. Um, how likely do you think it is that we are going to see a, a rail strike? And, and what would that mean for U.S. labor? I mean, there's a fairly good odds there'll be a strike. There hasn't been one in a long time. The railroad workers have incredible leverage because America does depend on freight for transportation in a big way. So uh, and the deal that Biden put together, frankly, wasn't a great deal. It wasn't much better than the unions could get on their own. So I think there's probably a, you know, likely chance we're going to see a strike. Which would be pretty exciting. The other thing is that Labor Secretary Marty Walsh just last week. Uh, who helped usher in this tentative deal. Uh, He said, of course, that he hopes new deals can be reached, but if they can't, Congress will have to take action to avert a strike in our country. So we have the labor secretary of a Democratic government saying the government should force these people back to work under conditions they have said are unacceptable. This is what rail companies will want. Uh, And I wonder if you think, you know, This is a couple of steps away from where we are now. But if the union leadership agrees and workers don't, then we have the possibility of a wildcat strike. 
uh, how significant do you think that would be? Well, I think very significant. And I do think it's significant that the Biden administration is signaling that it would force workers to go back to work, that they essentially would side with the railroad companies, which would be a betrayal of the union movement. Um, And yes, if they were wildcat strike, that would be incredible. I think it would be a signal to workers around the country frankly, to strike and resist, which is about time, right? By the way, I'm coming to you from the the land of revolution. I'm in Moscow, Russia, right? Right. Now. So, anyway. How's your trip been? It's good. Yeah. It's good. Is it it's cold? incredible. Is it actually. cold over there? I'm on my way to Donbass in a couple of days. Yes. Oh, wow. All right. So we'll have to talk about what your experiences there have been. Yeah. I mean, you know, Biden has been discussed as the the most pro-union president since FDR. Uh, Marty Walsh himself was heralded as a good pick. Uh, And so it is disappointing to see him saying that he hopes Congress will force workers back to work. Um, The other thing that is happening is, you know, all eyes before this uh, rail strike possibility loomed had been on the contract negotiations between 22,000 port workers. Uh, Those ones they are stretching on. They're, they're in the middle of months of negotiations. Uh, nobody really seems to be saying that they expect to strike or see service disruptions. But the talks are contentious and they are dragging out. And some issues have come before the National Labor Relations Board. And once again, that union just yesterday issued an urgent call for funding saying, We are going to have to furlough employees when our caseload is skyrocketing. This is going to be a crisis in labor law enforcement. And so, you know, again, under the the watch of a supposedly uh, notably pro-labor president, we have threats uh, that Congress is going to order workers back to work when they have voted to strike. And we also have uh, the White House, you know, we, we have uh, the NLRB having to beg Congress for money. So what What is going on here? Why is the National Labor Relations Board so underfunded? Why are they begging Congress for money in, in, in a Democratic uh, administration? Well, I mean, to be totally frank, it's because the Democratic Party gave up on the working class and unions a long time ago. You know, Hillary Clinton said it best when she said she viewed the working class of middle America as the deplorables. I mean, let's be honest, uh, the the, um, the unity between labor and the Democrats has broken down. It broke down a long time ago. The sad part is the labor movement hasn't gotten the memo yet. You know, they haven't figured it out. But their loyalty to the Democratic Party is one way at this point. Yeah, I think that is I think that is pretty obvious. The other, I think, perhaps very interesting development here is is over in the Federal Trade Commission. The FTC yesterday issued a new policy statement on what it considers to be unfair methods of competition and its ability to enforce regulations curtailing them. Their new statement rescinded a 2015 policy statement that had curbed FTC's enforcement action. Uh, In a press release, the, the commission says now, Congress gave us the unique authority to identify and police unfair competition beyond what other antitrust statutes cover. Uh, In recent years, the agency has not always carried out that responsibility consistently, and the previous policy had restricted its oversight to a narrow set of circumstances, making it hard for the agency to challenge the full array of anti-competitive behavior in the market. Today's statement removes that restriction 
and declares the agency's intent to exercise its full statutory authority against companies that use unfair tactics to gain advantage instead of competing on the merits. So this is what I would say opponents of Biden's FTC chair nominee, Lena Khan, were afraid of. Uh, reports that I see say the first target could be big tech. I mean, I would absolutely welcome more rigorous enforcement of anti-competitive action across the board. So uh, what, what do you make of this statement? I think it's great if it's true. I mean, we have, we have not enforced antitrust laws in a serious way in decades. So look, if they're serious and they're going to crack down on monopolies, that would be a welcome, welcome move, not just by unions and labor, but frankly, by, you know, small businesses. And, you know, we have probably the most, you know, monopolistic system that we've ever seen. And it really is time to break up these these conglomerates. Yeah, I think it's interesting that they are uh, rescinding a statement made in 2015 when uh, Barack Obama was president. Uh, so we have Biden here once again un undoing some of the more egregious uh, actions that took place under uh, the administration of the man who he was vice president for. The other thing I wonder is, I mean, this it's it feels like a flurry of action uh, right before it potentially is going to be too late. I mean, I guess because the FTC is not, um, you know, it's it's an agency with its own power. It's not, uh, you know, it's not something that has to go through Congress. Uh, so maybe the sort of timing of this isn't so significant, but I do wonder why, why it has taken 18 months, uh, f for a statement like this to be issued. Well, I don't know for sure, but it is interesting. They're issuing the statement right after the midterms, right? They somehow must have thought this could impact the midterms. And maybe now they feel they have a little bit of wriggle room before 2024 to do something. So again, if they do. I welcome it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dan Kavalik, always appreciate you joining us. Why don't you tell our listeners, uh, wh what do you do in Moscow? Uh, where should they go to look for more of your work? Well, thank you. First of all, I'm in, I'm in Moscow doing some people-to-people -people diplomacy, opposing you know, the war that basically is being waged against Russia at this point. I'm going to head to the Donbass and pay witness to the war there. And if people want to you know, check out my books, they can go to skyhorsepublishing.com. And I'm on Twitter at Daniel M. Kavalik. Thanks for joining us, Dan. We'll be very interested in uh, what your experiences are in the Donbass. Thanks. Das Vidania. <laughs> das Vidania. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> hey, John, uh, I know we have a break coming up soon, but I wanted to um, mention this report by uh, the UN Special Rapporteur yes. on coercive measures and human rights. She has just spent 12 days in Syria and said she was struck by the pervasiveness of the human rights and humanitarian impact of the unilateral coercive measures imposed on Syria. Uh, so she's talking about sanctions. She's talking about the impact of sanctions That's on right. the lives of Syrians. She said 90 percent right. of Syria's population is living below the poverty line with limited access to food, water, electricity, shelter, cooking, fuel, transportation, health care. Uh, she said she just basically concluded like there's the, these are not serving the purpose that they uh, that we are told they are serving. These are just hurting the people of Syria. It's it's really that simple. It truly is. You know, so many issues in life are not simple. They're complicated. This one is actually very simple. Uh, sanctions. 
unilateral sanctions. These are not United Nations sanctions. They're mostly sanctions imposed by the United States. Yeah. Have served only to hurt the poorest and most vulnerable people in Syria. 90%, as you said, 90% of Syrians are living below the poverty level. Uh, and it's not like Lebanon, where there are international UN-sponsored programs to, to help to relocate people so that they can actually end up leading productive lives. Yeah. If you're Syrian, you're just out of luck. Now, the shame of all this is this UN special rapporteur who replaced uh, Nils uh, Melzer, uh, this is an unpaid voluntary position at the United Nations. Yeah. So she she takes these trips. She was in Syria for 12 days. She writes her conclusions in these studies that get, get great uh, uh, press coverage, and then nothing happens because – there's there's no method of actually enforcing her findings here. Uh, this this is a real shame. Yeah, but at least we have you know yet another person saying that's right. Sanctions have a devastating effect on the people. Uh, if you are suggesting that sanctions are an effective way of achieving regime change after uh, waging war was not effective, just please stop stop. Pull that fig leaf away and reveal them for what they are and reveal the U.S. actions for what they are, which is purely, purely punishment and vindictiveness. That's We're going right. to take a quick break here. We've got lots more to get to. As you can tell, too much news to get through. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatments. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. As vote counts slowly continue to come in, it is more and more clear that the Republicans have narrowly won control of the House of Representatives, even if the final calls haven't yet been made. That sounds great for Republicans, but it's not really that simple. Mainstream Republican commentators are saying that the party's narrow majority may be what it takes to destroy its own agenda. The thinking is that Kevin McCarthy, who is likely to become Speaker of the House, is a weak figure. He's easily pushed around and intimidated by the far-right Freedom Caucus. One former Republican National Committee chairman said yesterday, get this, quote, McCarthy is no John Boehner. Boehner was tough. He's no Paul Ryan. Ryan was a good guy. McCarthy's just weak, unquote. What that apparently means is that McCarthy will spend his time investigating and apparently working to impeach President Biden and several cabinet members. What it apparently means is that the country shouldn't expect much in the way of legislation coming out of the House. Now, this is all at the demand of the far-right Freedom Caucus. And other far-right Republicans may force McCarthy into some kind of brinkmanship with the White House over the debt ceiling, an issue that shouldn't be at all controversial, but which Republicans occasionally use to shut down the government and, by extension, damage the country's creditworthiness. On the Senate side, Democrats appear to have kept the seats of incumbent Arizona Senator Mark Kelly, although the Associated Press hasn't formally called that race. Nevada is still too close to call. And Georgia is going to a runoff. 
In other news, Black Liberation Army elder Mutulu Shakur was released on parole from federal prison yesterday. He had served 34 years of a 60-year sentence and was released only because he is near death from bone marrow cancer. He had been denied parole 10 times before finally being cleared as no threat to the public. This is yet another example of carceral overreach. Shakur was seen by many as a freedom fighter and a political prisoner. At least he'll be able to die in his own bed rather than in a cage. We're going to talk about this and more with Ajamu Baraka. He's an international human rights activist, organizer, political analyst, and the national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace. It's great to have you back, Ajamu. Welcome. I'm good. I'm glad to be back. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Let's begin with the House of Representatives. I think this election was actually bad news for House Republicans, at least for the less crazy House Republicans. We've seen reports already that McCarthy actually does not have all of the votes of his caucus lined up to make him speaker. He needs 218 votes. We've seen in the news that McCarthy has had to make a trade for the votes of the Freedom Caucus members. In exchange for their support, he'll allow impeachment hearings on Joe Biden, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, and even Dr. Fauci, who is retiring at the end of the year and thus will not be eligible for impeachment. The Freedom Caucus which looks set to control the agenda for Republicans, doesn't seem to be interested in economic policy. They're not interested in foreign affairs or, frankly, anything else. What's your take? Is Congress going to be able to accomplish anything at all in the next two years? Um, no, I doubt it. I think that the, a gridlock is is going to be the reality that we will be stuck with for the next couple of years. Uh, and, and part of that gridlock comes from the fact that uh, congressional uh, investigative uh, agencies and structures were, in fact, weaponized. Man, weaponized by both parties, but recently uh, by the Democrat Party. Uh, and therefore, there are many people on the Republican side, even beyond the Freedom Caucus, uh, that want to use the power of congressional uh, hearings and, and within certain committees. Uh, to give back a little bit of what they felt they have received from the uh, Democrat side. So um, this kind of, of hyper-politicization uh, of the processes uh, within Congress, investigative processes, is going to continue. And the result will be that um, all of the serious issues that are facing you know, the public in the U.S., in particular working class people and the poor, are not really going to be addressed. And sometimes you, one wonders if this is not uh, a, a situation that uh, the neoliberal Democrats can be quite comfortable with. Um, we have descended, it seems, into a period where the Democrats and Republicans are just going to impeach each other's leaders. Bill Clinton was impeached for what now looks like quaint and silly reasons. Donald Trump was impeached twice, and now the Republicans are going after Biden. To what end? What do we accomplish with these impeachments year after year? Well, you know, uh, uh, John, again, it, it really reflects the, the kind of degeneration of, yeah. of, of respect for U.S. US uh, congressional uh, politics and the uh, denigration of quality of, of individuals who, who run for public office today that uh, there's no regard to uh, traditions in which 
uh, weapons like impeachment would be the last resort uh, as a consequence of of, of serious uh, allegations of crimes. Uh, today, they are uh, they have been normalized as just another instrument, another tool to be used by one party or the other to advance uh, their their particular uh, political uh, interests. So it, it it reflects, I think, a continuation and deepening of the legitimation crisis we see in the U.S. Um, and the outcome of this is not going to be very pretty for for people who believe in the the continuity uh, of this uh, political process in the U.S. It's not going to be resolved anytime soon. As long as we have these two parties uh, uh, in control uh, and advancing some very narrow interests. Jammu, following up on that, what exactly do you envision the Republican agenda being in in this Congress. It seems that nobody's talking about policy. Nobody's talking about the economy. They're talking about Donald Trump and Hunter Biden's laptop and other issues that have nothing to do with running the country. Is this what the next two years are going to look like? They, Of course. And I think that the foundation was set uh, these first two years under the uh, Biden administration. Yeah. We, we, we raised the question, what have the Democrats been talking about in the lead into the midterm elections where uh, the working class and poor are catching pure hell as a consequence of uh, unwise policies, including uh, allowing the conditions to, to to be created that resulted in the war in Ukraine, of uh, the issue of inflation, you know, part, partly because of the uh, unchecked ability of monopoly capital to raise prices without any kind of consequences, uh, the result of the war impacting uh, uh, prices of food uh, and petroleum. Uh, and people catching hell as a consequence. Where was the conversation around that? There was very little conversation. So this is, again, part of the corruption of the political system where you have these two parties uh, representing these very narrow uh, interests on the part of the Republicans, the uh, narrow national sort of perspective of, of national capitalism, and on the part of the, of the Democrats, the perspective and the interests of the U.S.-based transnational monopoly uh, capitalists. So this is where we are. It's a, it's a pathetic situation, but it's, it is the objective reality we have right now in the U.S. Yes, indeed. I want to ask you about uh, Donald Trump, your opinion on the aftermath of the midterm election. It seems that Tuesday was a very bad day for Donald Trump. And in the following days, he's made what I think is a fool of himself through his rants on Truth Social. He's directly attacked Florida Governor Ron DeSantis repeatedly over the last several days, although DeSantis has not responded at all. Uh, Trump looks petty. He looks frightened. Yesterday, he mocked uh, Virginia Governor Youngkin um, and then said, well, that sounds odd. That sounds like a Chinese name, Youngkin. Uh, he looks frightened. Uh, Murdoch media outlets like Fox News, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Post have all attacked Trump this week, and there are increasing calls for him to shut his mouth and get out of politics. So with that said, Trump is expected to announce his 2024 candidacy on Tuesday. What are we looking at in the Republican Party over the next year? Is this the end of Donald Trump or is it the beginning of a long and bitter and chaotic fight? I definitely don't think it's the end of Donald Trump. 
Mm. And I think it will be a internal uh, intensified internal fight within the Republican Party that I don't think really is going to last that long. You know, but what what we what we're going to see with the internal struggle within the Republican Party is the kind of fight, the kind of struggle that we should have seen within the Democrat Party, a fight over the 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 future of the party. What interests will be dominant in that party? We haven't had that kind of struggle in the Democrat Party because of the uh, hegemony of of the neoliberal um, agenda. Uh, but uh, that is not going to be the case within uh, the Democrats. And I would argue. That is, I mean, within Republicans, I would argue that as long as Donald Trump has a popular base, he is not going to go anywhere. We understand that the uh, establishment yeah. uh, uh, leadership, they, they would like to see him go. But what's the alternative? DeSantis, who is also a, a, uh, a, a far right uh, element? Yes. This is the issue we have with the U.S. There's no real alternatives right now within the monopoly duopoly. I no, also indeed. John, I also think, you know, DeSantis is an alternative. I mean, I don't think Trump is totally wrong by saying he did help make DeSantis. Yeah, And the media is doing with DeSantis that they have done uh, what they did with Trump, you know, like they and of course, you know, as I say, there's a tension between, you know, needing to watch what could be the next thing coming versus sort of building that thing yourself. Uh, But yeah, Yeah. I mean, yeah, they they called DeSantis Trump light for a reason. Yeah, I don't know that he's light. Exactly, and it, it is such a, and it's such a day. Yeah, he's heavier than, than Trump, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and it's such a dangerous game that the corporate media seems to be playing and propping up a DeSantis. The same thing that they did in, in collusion with the hit with the Clinton campaign in propping up Donald Trump. I that's right. I think also maybe there is something to be said for, you know, I mean, the, the media is also desperately they really tried to uh, to make Liz Cheney a viable thing for a while. Um, but, you know, I like it, it seems to be Trump's grievances that are what mobilize people. Right. Trump sort of whining about people being mean to him, whining about the election being stolen from him, you know, that kind of stuff, because really, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what alternative to any of those sort of emotional triggers, re- other Republicans sort of quote unquote sort of normal mainstream Republicans are, are actually offering. And so you're kind of stuck between like Trump as this compelling force with his weird personal grievances, but they can't really be transferred that well uh, to another candidate. And then all of these other, uh, you know, regular Republicans who don't seem to have what people want and the, the policies that they actually achieve, like uh, the, the Dobbs decision, are very unpopular. But, you know, you know, Michelle, the, 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 the dangerous thing about what's happening today is that some of these Republicans are, in fact, raising some serious issues beyond just the, the cultural issues. I mean, there was a, a budding conversation, was a conversation that took place within the party around the, the plight of, of workers as a consequence of, of of the war in Ukraine. And there was the beginning of a what appeared to be a, a, a national conversation around the meaning of the midterm as it relates to the war in Ukraine. So they have been raising some issues. The, the problem is, of course, on the other side, uh, because the Democrats have nothing to offer in terms of a discussion around their what they have been able to give to uh, ordinary working class and poor people. They had to run away from the economic question. So there are some issues being debated out there. It's just that in, in the mainstream corporate press, 
primarily uh, leaning toward the liberal side, you don't see much of that coming from uh, from the Republicans, the kind of serious questions that people are, in fact, are trying to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yep. Ajamu, I'd like to turn to an article that you wrote for Black Agenda Report. It's entitled "For Black and or For African and Black Working Class and Colonized Peoples: Midterm Elections in the U.S. Offer No Relief from War, Repression, and Capitalist Misery." Unquote. Um, you write correctly, in my view, about how the country's neoliberal turn some 50 years ago has been a catastrophe for the poor, for people of color, and for those living under oppression. Can you expand uh, on that for us? Is it even possible to change the political system that we've given ourselves here in the U.S.? I think it has to be changed uh, because the political system right now has been captured by uh, the the uh, capitalist oligarchy. And uh, people are suffering, the working class, they are suffering. And, and, and specifically, when you look at the most vulnerable of the working class, uh, African-Americans and, and Latinos, uh, it is absolute uh, hell. So people are not going to allow uh, themselves to be subjected to those kinds of, of conditions forever. Uh, and so at least we, we have to have some kind of, of change in this country because it, the, the alternative is going to be the dissatisfaction we see in I mean, organized dissatisfaction coming from the far right uh, is, is, is going to result in, in fact, the more blatant and serious and dangerous neo-fascist reform. That, and that, that, you know, fascism is, in fact, a capitalist reform. So either we have a, a movement that brings about real structural change that, that allows the possibility for social justice to be constructed, or we are in for, I think, a prolonged period of fascistic policies in the United States of America, unfortunately. I know we've talked in the past about uh, about third parties and about the lack of viability of third parties in the United States. But I'll tell you, looking back over the last 50 years, it seems like we need viable third parties more now than we ever have before. And I mentioned on the show a couple of months ago, in the course of of writing a a recent book, um, I came to realize that there were dozens of viable third parties in the 19th century here in the United States. And you had people who were active politicians or sitting cabinet members who were who were just switching parties all the time. Uh, sometimes they would just create their own parties and then run as as favorite sons. We just don't see anything like that anymore. We've talked about how the the presidential debates, for example, have been taken away from the League of Women Voters, how independent uh, presidential candidates are no longer invited to uh, the debates, even if they are viable. Right. Uh, uh, Ralph Nader could never debate again. John Anderson could never debate again. Um, somebody like Jesse Ventura certainly would be laughed off the stage uh, if he tried to get into a debate. I know that when you were running for vice president um, on the Green Party ticket a few years ago, that uh, that um, Jill Stein, the presidential nominee, was actually arrested trying to get into a debate in in Philadelphia. So how do we get past that? Is it is it possible to get past the power and authority of this duopoly that's just crushing uh, uh, third parties and and dissent and new ideas? 
Well, actually, a, a number of our activists were arrested again. The children arrested uh, four years before uh, 2016 and 2012. Uh, but a number of our activists were arrested again in 2020 as we were trying to access the uh, uh, debates uh, during that first debate in New York. Uh, it's going to be very difficult, uh, John uh, and Michelle, because, uh, you know, that that sort of openness we had toward the latter part of the 19th century uh, is no longer uh, it, it no longer exists. I mean, I think one of the markers of that was the the imprisonment of Eugene Eugene uh, Depp. That's that right. As the as power concentrated, uh, they were able to uh, to to narrow the field of democratic participation. And that's become the 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 trend uh, over the last decades of the 20th century and, and certainly this century. So the monopoly control of the duopoly by the capitalist oligarchy, uh, it makes it very difficult for any kind of competition. We've seen what happened. We saw what happened with us in 2016. We saw how the Democrats moved to eliminate uh, Howard Hawkins in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see the, the virtual uh, 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 erasure of any kind of third party and fourth party uh, challenge in this country on, on national and the local level. So it becomes very difficult to to raise to to have a democracy when you have a complete monopoly control of, of two parties representing the same mm-hmm. class interests. Jammu, we hear so much from the right wing about the dangers of so-called socialism. In fact, we simply don't elect socialists in the U.S. The squad, for example, is social democratic at best. Why is it that more progressive people, true socialists, are not represented in politics like they were 100 years ago at the time, let's say, of Eugene Debs? Partly because of what we've been talking about, that we we have more political space. Uh, to engage, um, especially on the local level. Uh, the, the socialist movement was relatively new in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, the repressive apparatus of the U.S. state was not as developed. Uh, but as we have moved into the 21st century, uh, we see that not only do we have this space that's been uh, not only constrained, but almost eliminated uh, for for socialist politics, but we find that uh, those of us who articulate a socialist alternative find ourselves in the crosshairs of state repression. So it's become almost it's become very very difficult. But we we will continue to fight because we have to, we we are in this really strange position now as socialists of having to uphold and defend liberal bourgeois values and practices. Because when those spaces are, are are constricted, it makes it almost impossible for us to engage the people and to build the kind of popular movement we have to build here in this country. So we have to push for a, a, a movement for democracy, participatory, radical democracy. That, to me, I think is a clarion call today for democracy and people-centered human rights. We have to raise the question, whose state exists? What interests are being articulated and protected by this state? You know, are our fundamental human rights being addressed by this state? So we have, we you know, these are the kinds of ideological struggles and issues we have to raise in order to expand the space for us to be able to engage and bring about the changes we know we have to bring about here in this country for ourselves and really for the world. We heard the news yesterday that Mutulu Shakur was released from prison 
uh, he's very ill and likely does not have much time left. Tell us about Mutulu Shakur and what you think his legacy will be. Well, Mutulu Shakur is one of our uh, political prisoners, um, and he he, uh, he he he's been in prison for something like thirty six years now. Uh, he was the second uh, line leadership that came out of the Black Liberation Movement. Um, uh, he, he paid a, a price as a consequence. I think it's important for the listeners to to know as we as they become familiar uh, or aware of of Dr. Shakur, is that the U.S. has the longest serving political prisoners on the planet. And many of them come out of the Black Liberation Movement of the 1960s and 1970s. And so, you know, while it's, 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 we, we celebrate the fact he, he's coming home, uh, it's really a shame that he's been released only to, to die uh, in his own bed. And but we have other people who are still in prison. We have we have other categories of prisoners that people need to be aware of. I mean, yourself, John. You know, you you know, we we consider you to have been a political prisoner. Yeah, a prisoner. And, and a part of the journalists. Appreciative. Part of the journalists and national security uh, of people who are, who will expose, you know, the legal activities of the U.S. state. So, you know, these are the kind of of of, of political education we have to engage the American public around that basically we have prisoners if you if your government says it believes in in human rights uh, then we need people to understand that that is a lie and that we have people whose rights have been have been violated simply for trying to tell the truth about the activities the illegal activities of their government so you know this is how we use not not youth but we raise the issue of, of Matulu Shakur. Uh, who was incarcerated? They charged him with being involved in the liberation of Sata Shakur, um, but he's coming home. But we have work to do to bring home uh, Leonard Peltier, Mumia, uh, and others who are still imprisoned by this repressive state. We've seen a trickle of former Black Panthers and former members of the Black Liberation Army released from prison in recent years. They're all elderly, and most of them are sick. Are some still incarcerated? And if so, why? The world has changed. The country has changed. And they're no threat to anybody or anything. Why keep them locked up, in most cases, in maximum security penitentiaries? Is it because of of the power of, of their ideas? Uh, their power of their ideas and their example. They want to make it absolutely clear that if you resist the hegemony of the capitalist uh, oligarchy. Uh, this is the potential fate that you will face. Uh, if you're not murdered like Fred Hampton and Mark Clark and and others, you can find yourself in prison for forever. So this is this is the example. And you, and you have uh, the, the security apparatus, the police forces, the federal authorities. When people come up for parole, they come out, they, they testify against parole. Uh, to keep people uh, incarcerated. But as long as people in the U.S., the public, the general public is unaware of the fact that we have these prisoners who've been in prison, in some cases over 40 years, uh, it will continue. And so the job that some of us have taken up in the Black Alliance of Peace and other formations is to make people aware uh, of this situation and, and to appeal for those to those people of conscience who believe that it's unjust and, and, and really backward to have these old folks in these prisons 
who are no threat to anybody at this point, still sitting in these cages across this country. That's exactly right. Thank you for joining us, Ajamu Baraka. Ajamu is an international human rights activist. He's an organizer, political analyst, and the national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come back with more. Stay tuned. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I am here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, and we are getting to... Look, I know it is a story that has consequences. I will feel them. If Twitter fully breaks and becomes not a thing, it is definitely going to make my job... at least different and at least temporarily harder. But it is also still kind of funny. And so it is nice that we get to talk to the, uh, about this on a Friday afternoon. Joining us to get into the turmoil that continues at Twitter is Chris Garafa, technologist and co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, I know, I know we've been calling on you often, but man, it just keeps getting worse. Uh, thank well, you for joining wait, us wait. again. Before you go on, we have to tell Chris happy birthday as well. <laughs> oh, thank you, John. Thank you, Michelle. I appreciate that. And what better way to spend this day than uh, talking Twitter with y'all? Yes, exactly. And, you know, I will say it is Twitter that alerted me uh, that it was your birthday because I went to your handle to see what you had been talking about specifically. <laughs> and these balloons came up and then I went, oh, let me go and check. Oh, so that feature still works. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's one of them. Um, so, you know, let me just ask before we get into the darkness, what are your favorite tweets by the quote unquote verified big brand or political accounts uh, that have been going on in the last 24 hours? Eli Lilly saying insulin is free now, I think is is it, it's a it's a subtle one, but I loved it. Well, I, I have to go. My number one is a fake <clears throat> Lockheed Martin account using the handle Lockheed Martini, which I wish I had thought of myself, uh, saying we will begin halting all weapon sales to Saudi Arabia, Israel and the United States until further investigation into their record of human rights abuses. So that one is pretty fantastic. Yeah, Uh, there was also a BP Global saying just because we killed the planet doesn't mean we can't miss it. And what really struck me about so many of these uh, was just how they were showing the reality of what these companies do. I mean, this is, you know, millions of people seeing these. And of course, there's, you know, there's in jokes and these accounts are now pretty much all suspended at this point, unfortunately. you know, and it's but it's 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 exposing what people know about these companies, whether it be Chiquita or Eli Lilly or, you know, organizations like APAC for sure. And also exposing uh, just how ridiculous this uh, Twitter blue sort of parallel quasi verification system was. Twitter blue was what allowed all of this to happen. It was a a paid service that basically allowed people to buy these blue verification checks for their accounts, uh, regardless of who they were impersonating. It is now suspended. And uh, Twitter is apparently actively trying to stop people from subscribing to address these impersonation issues. Um, So 
I also saw that as someone who we have been quoting all week as a sort of the voice of Twitter, Yoel Roth, who had been trying to explain what was happening at the company, he has left following the tide of safety and privacy experts who say they cannot do their jobs at this moment. Um, Lots of reports are concluding that Twitter is extremely hackable right now, uh, simultaneously with Twitter requesting that people give them their credit card information to pay for this new verification service. According to other reports, The company's head of legal is warning employees not to follow instructions that break the law and to call out sick or use whistleblower services if they have to. So what is the state of privacy and security at Twitter right now? Well, on the Twitter blue thing, it was funny because last night when your producer texted me to see if I could come on today, uh, you know, they said, hey, wild week for the Internet. And I I, tweeted, yes, can't wait to find out how many of the notes I write tonight are invalid by tomorrow's show. And of course, here we are. And of course, this morning we found out Twitter blue has been suspended, meaning that you cannot now sign up for that eight dollar a month plan that gets you not just the blue check, but the ability to do things like edit tweets. Uh, It's absolute chaos on Twitter right now. It is just pandemonium because no one knows what's going to happen. Musk is ruling by tweet. And again, we saw this with Donald Trump ruling by tweet. Of course, Twitter and the United States government, very different. But when we're looking at what is happening, you know, inside the company, I mean, just yesterday, as far as we know, their chief information security officer, chief privacy officer, chief compliance officer, global head of safety, global head of ad sales, all left the company in the last 24 hours. And this is particularly important, especially with the compliance, because Twitter continues to be under a consent agreement with the U.S. government that it has to actually go forward and get, you know, have regulatory processes and reviews done at the highest level of the company before it launches new products. And of course, in the last two weeks, it has not done that. And so I don't blame any of these folks for leaving, uh, particularly the you know privacy, compliance, and information security, because if Musk is telling you and is your boss as CEO, go do this thing that is going to legally put you at risk, there's no way to change that, right? Especially since he got rid of the board. Yeah. And I think this is, you know, important. These are important dots to connect, right? These aren't people who are like, I don't like Elon Musk. I don't support his politics. I'm resigning. You know, I I am resigning to make a statement. Uh, These people are quitting their jobs because they are exposing themselves to to possible legal consequences because, uh, you know, it, it seems they either have been asked or they anticipate being asked by their new boss to do something that is not they're not actually allowed to do. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And it's going to either be that they quit now or they get fired later for refusing Um, or they find out that someone under them who they're supposed to be responsible for has done what Musk wants uh, against this consent decree. So either way, it ends extremely poorly for these folks. So, again, you know, no surprise at all. I'm surprised, frankly, some of them I, you know, I'm familiar with their work. I'm surprised they lasted this long. What um what what's worth hacking at Twitter, right? If if this is if the company is just becoming more and more vulnerable, uh, more and more insecure, what what is vulnerable for your average user? Uh, phone numbers, contents of your direct messages. Um, if you have a locked down account, the contents of those tweets and 
your replies to other people. Um, things like that, first of all, would be extremely, extremely interesting, you know, interesting for the for the wrong people. Of course, you have credit card information. We don't know exactly how uh, Twitter has been storing credit card information, but that could possibly be there as well. Email addresses, um, any uh, any information you've given to Twitter and also information that they've gathered, like the type of device you're using, your IP address, which can help lead to a general location or your specific location data if you've left that feature on for the app. So many, many things uh, could come out and depending on who is trying to get them. Now, if it's gonna be somebody who's gonna use the information to send out scams and spam and all of that kind of stuff, that's one thing. They're gonna be looking for phone numbers, email addresses, stuff like that. If it's somebody who wants to find information on a group of people, a specific person, you know, an intelligence agency, for example, then they're gonna be looking for location information, patterns of logins, stuff like that. Do you think Twitter is actually going to just cease to function? I think it's a strong possibility. And, you know, I I just the other day went and downloaded my entire Twitter history. You can do that in the app or on the website. It sends you an email when it's done. You could click a link. You download it because, you know, I want to save some of the stuff that I've retweeted, some of the things that, you know, the images I've posted on there. And I recommend other folks do the same if you value any of the content that you've engaged with. Yeah. Uh, I think it's not going to be a necessarily an overnight thing. I think it's going to be a slow decay uh, until one day the Twitter that we see is nothing like the Twitter that we have been used to. Now, there's always the possibility, given the massive amounts of institutional knowledge that you need to run a system like Twitter at a technical level, it's certainly possible that tomorrow there could be a power outage in a data center or somebody pushes the wrong code to the website and it all just goes down. And that's also a possibility. I think it's less likely uh, than Musk just, you know, just 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 corporate rule by decree, by tweet, uh, just just completely destroying it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You know, I have to say, uh, you know, on the topic of people saving their, you know, it's I saw this um, Egyptologist tweeting about how, you know, she she studies collapse in antiquity and it happens fast and people should down download their Twitter archives. And it's like, okay, we're still we're talking about a social media platform. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I don't know to what level we should elevate the gravity of this. But, you know, again, it did began as a microblogging site. People have created good content. They have, uh, you know, seen things that they want to save. And and, you know, it kind of does go to show like people put People do put their hearts and souls into and onto these platforms, and you you have an expectation that it will be around, but it's a much uh, dodgier expectation, I think, than, um, you know, our, our other uh, previous methods of recording things, you know, onto paper, perhaps, into stone. And so yeah, I had a little chuckle about that, but, uh, you know, it's, 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 not, it's not nothing if this, if this platform actually does completely fall to pieces. I well, it, it could be. I just I want to say it could be extremely damaging to artists, to musicians, to politicians, to activists, and and organizations who rely on Twitter, and also the people who rely on Twitter to get out, you know, to to gather information. Mm-hmm. Um, another one of the, and I didn't like this one. Uh, somebody impersonated Senator Ed Markey last night, uh, and the account was up for quite some time. Yeah. Now that's that could be very damaging. Not that I'm a fan of Markey or not, but that could be damaging to a constituent. Who wants to get information from that 
from that account. So that's one of the real issues we have with this thing that, yes, a decade ago we lived without that millions of us cannot imagine it at this point. Yeah. I know you in the past have called for making Twitter or a similar platform a public uh, utility. And I do think the disaster we are watching unfold right now is probably going to give that idea some momentum. But I wonder, you know, we have also seen story after story revealing how deeply involved our government is in using these platforms to control narratives and not always in the interest of preventing the spread of dangerous lies, but in protecting their own behinds. And so I wonder, you know, if Twitter were to be made a public utility, would that be more likely and how would you guard against it? Well, there's there's kind of an immediate question here and, and more of a long term question. And I think, you know, on the immediate, first of all, it has to be run by the people who make it run. And that's not just the employees, the developers, the project specialists, the you know designers and all of that, you know, the, the engineers, but also the people who use Twitter, who provide the content for it, because that's a key thing. If there were no content by people posting on it, there would be no Twitter. We wouldn't be having this conversation. It would be like one of the thousands of other social media platforms that no one remembers the names of now because they never got any engagement. So. It should be under that the public control, not just of the this isn't a private company for private profit, but also the what do we as a society want this company to look like or want this platform, I should say, to look like to do for us. And that's something that and also, I mean, just the the government misinformation, that's something that they already engage in. I mean, they had special, you know, fully special departments uh, to do that kind of stuff. We should also note, by the way, that, uh, we, you know, we could ask Twitter about these things as as journalists, as reporters, but they don't have a communications department anymore. So, they yes, got rid of their communications that. department as well. You just have I to think, tweet at Elon Musk. I think the larger uh, perspective on this, though, is that this is not just a United States company, right? I mean, this is a uh, this is an international you know platform that is used across the world by people you know for political work, for sports, for everything. And so there should be an international agreement and an international body that maintains these sorts of platforms and keeps them for, you know, for the public good, not just of people in the U.S. using it, but of the people in every country and just globally who also use them. I think this certainly not a thing that could happen overnight. But as we are, you know, watching this this mess, watching this absolute disaster unfold in front of us, when we're thinking about what's next and how do we take control and get control of these platforms that would not exist without us, we should be thinking about these things. Yeah, I'm just looking now, sorry, at a tweet about the stock fluctuation of Eli Lilly and, you know, the the latest kind of theory is that this is being done not just to make fun of Elon Musk, but to potentially get him sued by some of these companies that find themselves impersonated on his platform. I wonder, just off the top of your head, Chris, how how likely do you think that Elon Musk actually faces some legal consequences from Twitter Blue? I mean, Eli Lilly's stock is entirely fine. It's down you know, maybe 20 or so right now. Last time I looked uh, just before we started, uh, they'll, I'm sure they'll be fine. Elon Musk, on the other hand, I'm not I, I think um, I think he got himself to a bigger mess than he realized, frankly. Yeah. Forty four billion dollars. Turns out that that is uh, that's going to re- require over a billion dollars a year in just interest payments, just interest to repay those loans. Musk did announce to Twitter staff last night 
that it's possible the company could declare bankruptcy. And, you know, let's say Eli Lilly and Nintendo, but Nintendo, which is very you know infamous for protecting its IP rights and did have some extremely vulgar impersonators on Twitter yesterday. Uh, you know, if they sued, if some of these other companies sued, you know, I don't know if they'd have a case or not legally, but I, I certainly think it would waste a lot of time and money in terms of lawyers and filings and things like that. We could be at a, at a situation where Musk just says, you know what, we're just going to file bankruptcy. And I, I think we need to remember Jack Dorsey, the former CEO of Twitter, said that he thought Musk was going to be the best person for this role. And I'm really curious to see if there was any kind of agreement between them, gentlemen's agreement, uh, because, you know, uh, Dorsey is working on a new social media type platform. We don't know much about it. It's called Blue Skies. And I'm very curious to see where that goes. Hmm. Yes, because I know the other alternative a lot of people are going to is Mastodon. I, I won't ask you about how that works, but there doesn't seem to be any sort of agreed upon, uh, you know, place to exit from Twitter that is, is uh, you know, very comparable. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what he's working on. I mean, Musk was apparently also working on um, App X uh, that I guess we've all forgotten about as he as we've watched him slowly make Twitter blow up. Um, Chris, I, I wanted to ask, I surely people are watching this, right? Like the, the FTC has has said that it is watching Twitter to, uh, you know, that it that it even though it is in chaos, it has got to remain in compliance with some of the agreements that it has made with regulatory agencies. I think, as you said, uh, we do not overnight wake up in a world where platforms like Twitter are public utilities. But I wonder what you think might be steps in the meantime, right? If you think that, um, you know, the powers that be are going to look at what happens at Twitter and decide this is the unique consequence of a narcissist biting off more than he can chew, or is this something that could possibly happen again and maybe they need to guard against it? Do, Do you think that do you think anything in terms of sort of social media regulation or acquisition or anything like that, does that change as a result of this catastrophe? Well, it's very interesting that the only real criticism at a government level that this whole situation is getting outside of the FTC and its regulatory processes with the existing consent agreement is that Biden is now saying that the the purchase and the financing of it should be investigated as a national security matter Mm -hmm. uh, because Saudi Arabia had some part in providing some of the financing for this, for this purchase. Uh, that's that's really been the only government comment outside again of this consent degree enforcement from the, from the FTC. I don't think anyone's going to learn any lessons that they should have learned from this. I think, you know, the the venture capitalists, the lenders, the banks, they're just going to look for their next unicorn. Uh, I think Elon Musk will be, you know, <laughs> be sued into oblivion, but he is not one to sit back and say, "Yep, I was wrong." I think he'll come back out with his next thing, whether that means he has to shut down Tesla or shut down another company in order to fund all of this. You know, he does have a lot of uh, of options, none of which are great for him uh, in terms of, you know, pulling all that together. So I don't think that uh, without mass public pressure saying like this is 
much more than a company. This is a platform. It's a the you know it's the the town square, so to say. This is the commons. We should reclaim that. We should control the way it's monitored. We should control the way that it works. We should control you know what is what is happening and what's going to happen on it. I think that's the movement that has to happen. It's not going to be something that comes naturally out of any kind of a you know move from the FTC or any other part of the government, or certainly not you know in a potential bankruptcy hearing. That was Chris Garafa. Chris, I mean, at least we've been uh, we've been texting you over fun things to talk about for the past week. Um, what have you got coming up on the Covert Action Bulletin podcast? Well, uh, working on next week's stories now, but I will say if you haven't listened to it on Wednesday, we released an excellent episode with Carl Zha uh, talking about all about China and the information war against China. Thank you so much for joining us and go check that out, listeners, if you want to hear more. Uh, I don't think we're going to take a break here because, again, there's just so much to get into. I have to say, John, uh, I am absolutely delighted at this Republican infighting over leadership roles and, uh, you know, formal leadership roles in Congress, as well as the sort of informal leadership of the party. We have had Marjorie Taylor Greene basically tweeting in a very long thread that was, you know, about <laughs> philosophy of politics and blah, 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 but basically tweeting uh, for Ron DeSantis to stay in Florida. And we had Marco Rubio saying uh, we should, you know, uh, we shouldn't vote on anything until we uh, basically saying uh, the people who brought us victories in Florida should be the ones that we are listening to. This is so much more fun than I thought it was going to be. It was really unexpected. I have to say, I didn't expect the Republicans to just turn on each other like they have in a matter of 72 hours. But that's exactly what has happened here. This is a this is a the early stages of of a battle for the soul of the Republican Party as we approach the 2024 elections. And, uh, you know, the MAGA people are solidly MAGA. And then there are others backed by uh, the Murdoch family and their media outlets who are saying, this isn't working. It's time to move on. I got a text message today from one of my best friends from college who is a who was a full throated Trump MAGA uh, uh, person. I mean, he you can't get any more pro Trump than my buddy. And um, and he said that Trump needs to be silenced and he needs to be sent away to Mar-a-Lago where he can live happily ever after with his mouth shut. And I think that's what we're going to be seeing more and more of uh, in the coming months. You know, I see. Hey, do you remember when Lindsey Graham uh, mentioned a national abortion ban? Oh, yeah. Remember sure. when he did that? And he, he even proposed a vote. Yep. They're already coming for him. Chris Sununu, uh, the governor of New Hampshire, is yep. blaming is blaming Lindsey Graham for Republican losses, also blaming um whatever, uh, some, some tinkering with Medicare and social security. So and, yeah, this is, this is fun. And Matt, get Matt Gates is, is blaming McCarthy. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I pointed out earlier, McCarthy apparently does not have the 218 votes necessary to get himself elected speaker. And, uh, NBC news is saying that what he's promised individual members of the Freedom Caucus is that they can have impeachment hearings uh, on uh, on Joe Biden. But with a plan like that, as NBC said, every single member of the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives is a Joe Manchin. 
everybody's a kingmaker. Everybody gets what he wants because McCarthy is weak and he wants more than anything else to be Speaker of the House, something that's twice been denied him. Yep. When John Boehner beat him and again when uh, when Paul Ryan beat him. So I think the Republicans are not in a good position right now at all. And it doesn't matter how many seats they win in the House of Representatives. I also have to say, I know we have some news of the weird, but uh, we didn't mention that uh, CNN came in third on election night. Yeah, in terms of ratings, which I don't even say to like gloat or whatever. Right. I mean, CNN is is a lot of garbage most of the time. But, mm-hmm. you know, it does look more and more like a lot of people are going to be losing their jobs. And, uh, you know, that's. Yeah. You know, I kept flipping back and forth between CNN and MSNBC on election night just because I really like and respect John King. His his understanding of demographics is unparalleled. But with that said. MSNBC's coverage was better. It was deeper. And they called races earlier. It was just better. Yeah. I don't know what's going on over there. And like it does matter. You know, it's it's again, we we sort of chuckle a little bit at CNN sometimes, but it is a, has been a very important part of the American media landscape. Right. And so oh, yeah. it's, it is it is worth considering, you know, what its demise or partial demise, right? I mean, CNN is in trouble. And what does that mean if CNN is in trouble? What does that mean to to the way people consume news and what they feel about it and what they feel about their the politics that goes into it? You know, it is it is meaningful. It's not just sort of I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> convince myself that it isn't just insider baseball, but I think it's not quite. I think you're right. Yep. I think you're right. Fun to watch, though. Sure is. We've got some news of the weird, too, if we have time for it. Go for it, John. So we're going to start off in Cleveland. Michael Sherwood and his son, Kyle, come from a long line of funeral directors, morticians. So a few years back, when a friend of theirs wondered how he might be able to have his tattoos preserved after he dies, the two came up with an idea. They figured out a method for removing and preserving tattoos. And then they started a business called Save My Ink Forever. Um, you know what this what this is is it's essentially tanning. Yeah. It's essentially making making leather out of human skin. Yeah. And um, it it turned out to be so popular that people have come to them to um, to plan years in advance for the for the um, for the preservation of their tattoos. Now, what you do with it, I mean, do you frame it? I it's guess. so weird. I have seen images of what it looks like when this is oh, done. really? Yeah, it's not, it's not appealing. Ooh, It doesn't yeah. look nice. It looks, it's, yeah, I don't think it's something I would want. Plus, no, plus it you sounds know, gross tattoos don't always age all that well. It's not like it's no. necessarily beautiful. I mean, as someone who has quite a few, you know, uh, they they look good in their. I mean, do what you want to do with your body, including whether you want to cut off pieces of skin and tan them and leave them to your relatives. Go for it. <laughs> but it's not it's not for aesthetic reasons. No. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Well, let's go to the animal kingdom. Get this: a female lion at the Topeka Zoo in Kansas has grown a mane. Cool. Like a male lion. Cool. The Topeka Capital Journal newspaper is reporting that. The lion Zuri or lioness Zuri, 18 years old, who lost her mate Avis in 2020, started producing testosterone after his death, which which resulted in what 
the newspaper is calling a butch look. It's nothing like the mane you would see on a fully sexually mature male lion. But she looks now like a teenaged male lion. Zookeeper said, along with the mane, Zuri has become more feisty. She's growling, snarling, and roaring more than she did before. She feels like she needs to protect her pride, and her testosterone continues to increase. Man, the way hormones work is so fascinating. It really is. I mean, you have the sort of extreme cases of animals that will change their sex in certain environments, but then also like lion growing a mane, pretty dope. Uh, you know, women's cycles syncing up. That's interesting. How does, you know, right. all this stuff. It's right. it's fascinating and so it powerful. Is. And we don't understand it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Hey, another, another story about body art, which was just fascinating to me. This is from Toronto, Canada. A, a designer by the name of Amanda Booth has a business making jewelry that she calls Trinkets by Amanda. Okay, no big deal. Her first pieces of jewelry were made out of clay. And then a friend contacted her and asked if she could make a jewelry set from her son's ashes. Now, funeral homes will send ashes off and you can have a diamond made and have it set or whatever. So this isn't terribly unusual. Booth said she has never said no to a friend and the set inspired other customers, one who asked if she could use breast milk to make jewelry. No, she posted about no. this jewelry <laughs> on TikTok and the business took off, including orders for jewelry made from umbilical cords, placentas, and human hair. Why, people? <laughs> but it says the real creme de la creme uh-huh. came when people began requesting jewelry made from semen. Hey. Booth, Booth transforms the liquids into powder and mixes them with clay, and then sculpts the jewelry piece. Apparently, she's making money hand over fist. Wow. Hand over fist. Pretty good metaphor there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Sorry. I'm sorry. It's just the first thing I thought of. Wow. All right. Don't need it. I don't need it at all. Not not for me. It's not for me. And, you know, we we talked uh, yesterday, I guess it was, about Paul Mellon's uh, artwork being auctioned. Uh, The auction was completed yesterday evening, and it went well over $1.5 billion. I think it's a wonderful thing. Every cent of it is going to charity. But keeping in that theme of, of fine art, a 1941 artwork by the Dutch master abstract expressionist P.A. Mondrian has been found to have been hanging upside down in various museums for 75 years. This is according to The Guardian. It says one could be forgiven for the mistake. The piece features interlaced red, yellow, black, and blue adhesive tape strips that subtly thicken at the bottom. But a photograph of Mondrian's studio shows the same piece on an easel with the bottom at the top. It says Suzanne Meyer Buser, curator of the North Rhine-Westphalia Art Collection, said it will continue to be displayed upside down. What? Why? She says... Because the adhesive strips have already become extremely loose and the piece is hanging together by a thread. Uh, And now the fact that it's been upside down for 75 years is a part of the artwork's story. So they're going to leave it like that. Interesting. I'm looking now. The Guardian has a piece where you can sort of slide a slider back and forth to see the upside down way and the um, correct way. Oh, that's fun. I'll check it out. I think I prefer the correct way, actually. But I guess I'm going to be denied that now by big art. 
trying to control my consumption. Psh, terrible. Uh, I've got a headline for you, and that's all it is before we go. But deadly can- deadly cobra vanishes during Missouri Venom Fest. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I loved it. What a world. All right, we're going to leave it there, John. Uh, I want to say, of course, thanks to everybody who joined us all week and to our producers and engineers here. We'll come back next week and talk about Joe Biden meeting Xi Jinping this weekend and what Biden's been up to in East Asia. And of course, all the rest of the news when we talk to you again on Monday. On behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Whitty, thanks to you for listening. See you in a couple of days. <laughs>